This is Anatomy of Violence, a project brought to you by the Center on Violence Against Women and Children at Rutgers University. This podcast is where we talk about violence and victimization on college and university campuses. My name is Jamie Ken, and today we're going to talk about LGBTQ students' experiences and what kinds of services are available for them after they experience victimization. I think it's really important to first address what exactly does LGBTQ mean and who exactly is included in the community? LGBT or LGBTQ is a common enough acronym nowadays, and we assume that everyone understands who is included in that. But just in case, LGBTQ stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. To some sexual and gender minorities, LGBTQ can feel like it doesn't really capture how they want to identify themselves. So some people use the term LGBTQ+, and that plus sign can include a multitude of other gender and sexual identities. Each of the letters within the LGBTQ acronym are valid and important, including the ones that fall underneath the plus sign, or letters that people don't mention as often. And it's important to note that people within the community can also identify with more than one of those letters at a time. For the remainder of the episode, I'll be using the term LGBTQ+, or LGBTQ, to encapsulate the multitude of sexual and gender minorities that are included within this community. As the visibility of the LGBTQ community has increased over the past few decades, we have become more familiar with terminology like homosexual, which means that someone is attracted to people the same gender as them, and heterosexual, meaning someone that is attracted to people that are not the same gender as them. We might be less familiar with the term cisgender. This is used to describe someone whose gender assigned at birth matches their current gender identity. Cisgender is usually considered in contrast to identities that fall underneath the transgender umbrella. This can include binary transgender folks, gender nonconforming, genderqueer, non-binary, and other gender minority identities. I'm not going to be spending much time in this episode discussing the nuances of these different identities, but if any of these terms that I have mentioned are unfamiliar, be sure to check out the resources in the show notes. LGBTQ students experience many of the same forms of violence that their heterosexual and cisgender counterparts do. L.B. Klein, a PhD candidate at UNC Chapel Hill, gives us more details about patterns of violence within the LGBTQ community. LGBTQ students face the many of the same forms of violence that cisgender heterosexual students experience, um, violence in the context of intimate partner relationships, sexual violence, stalking, they may experience um, sexual harassment. But depending on the specific group of LGBTQ plus folks we're talking about, they may be at a higher risk of certain forms of violence. So For example, transgender, genderqueer, and non-binary students are much more likely to experience sexual violence and intimate partner violence. And that sexual violence could be in the context of a relationship or because someone is specifically targeted for being trans. We also know that bisexual, pansexual, and queer women, folks who are not gay, lesbian, women who are not gay, lesbian, or Um, heterosexual face an elevated risk of sexual violence. 
And we also know that folks who are LGBTQ plus are targeted specifically for hate-related violence for the, their identities. So folks might be targeted for their gender expression. They may be targeted for their sexual orientation. And so those are other forms of violence that are more specific to folks who are LGBTQ as well. So what makes queer and transgender students more vulnerable to experiencing violence on campuses? To help us answer this question, we'll hear from Dr. Heather McCauley, a faculty member at Michigan State University. There's a couple reasons why they are at greater risk for sexual violence and intimate partner violence. We know that LGBT people are more likely to be exposed to other forms of violence early in childhood, like adverse childhood experiences, witnessing domestic violence in their families, bullying, uh, and dating violence in adolescence. And once you experience violence once, you're more likely to experience it again. So that might be partially contributing to the elevated rates that we see among LGBT college students. We also know that LGBT students experience, and we use minority stress theory to frame their experiences. And that tells us that they're exposed to discrimination in their environments, which um, shape their feelings, uh, increasing the likelihood for this internalized homonegativity. And then that results in all sorts of coping behaviors, like substance use, for example. And that might shape the context in which they're experiencing their relationships in college. We also know that LGBT students may be targeted because of their sexual orientation and gender identity or perceived sexual orientation or gender identity from perpetrators. And then we see um, in the bystander intervention literature a lack of intervening to stop these behaviors because of perceptions of who is worth intervening for. It's important to say here that being a part of the LGBTQ community doesn't mean that your queer identity causes you to experience violence. Rather, it is the vulnerability of being a part of a marginalized group that raises your risk of victimization. Because someone is LGBTQ, it doesn't mean they're inherently at higher risk, right? So I think that folks can make an assumption that if a group experiences more of anything, more suicide rates, higher rates of violence, et cetera, it's because, well, there's something inherent about that group. And what we know is that's not really true. We do know also, though, that because someone is in a relationship with someone who may be the same gender as they are, or one or both people, you know, are queer or trans, that also doesn't make them not able to experience violence. There's an idea sometimes that um, intimate partner or sexual violence are often constructed in this heteronormative way. So folks are not immune to violence because they're LGBTQ, but they also don't experience that violence because of that identity. So then the question is, why do they experience violence at the same or elevated rates, depending on the specific identity we're talking about or the specific type of violence? And the answer to that elevation is because folks are targeted because of their identities. We know that for for all um, cisgender women and all transgender folks that the vast majority of the time, the person who is causing harm is a cisgender heterosexual man, right? And so that's another piece to be thinking about when it specifically relates to um, cis and trans women. So a big part of the why for folks experiencing violence, for, for many part types of violence, people experience violence because 
they people can perpetrate violence against them. So folks who societally are vulnerable for a variety of reasons have elevated risk, right? Folks with disabilities have higher risks. We see a lot of harm caused to children. We see a lot of harm caused to elderly folks. Um, and we see a lot of harm that happens to LGBTQ folks, particularly bisexual um, cis women and also um, trans non-binary and queer folks or the intersection. And so there's also some piece here societally that when folks are experiencing marginalization, minoritization, they're at elevated risk of violence. Not only people have interpersonal violence happen in relationships, folks experience sexual violence, folks are targeted, but there's that elevated and added risk um, that happens with the intersections of some identities because of the fact that we live um, in a culture that doesn't um, doesn't celebrate folks um, who are sexual or gender minorities. Universities can offer victim services to LGBTQ plus students through a variety of ways. Some schools offer assistance or resources through an LGBTQ specific student center, counseling centers, women's centers, and sometimes schools even rely on external community centers. Only offering services to students through these venues is problematic for a number of reasons. Where would someone feel comfortable? So let's say you're you're an advocate on a campus and you're based in a women's center and the person that you are seeing is a transgender man, right? Or a non-binary person. And they're like, I don't know about this whole thing going in the women's center. And that person has an uphill battle. So what I've seen folks do is do a lot of outreach and being physically present in other spaces and providing support in spaces that feel more affirming to them, whatever those look like. There's an assumption, well, folks could just go to an LGBTQ center. We're really lucky at my institution that the director of our LGBTQ center is incredibly knowledge about issues of violence. Um, and I think a lot of LGBTQ personnel, by nature of the statistics I just talked about, um, have some expertise, but a lot of folks don't. Services have a challenge in LGBTQ centers, not necessarily um, equipped for or designed to address issues of violence. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. Um, and, on, and conversely, um, organizations and services on campus that provide services around gender-based violence may or may not really get queer and trans issues and the needs of students. Our understanding of how violence is perpetrated or who can be considered a victim has been shaped by the battered women's movement. And although the advocates from that time brought important issues like sexual and domestic violence to the forefront, it also has created a narrative where only cis men can be perpetrators and cis women can be victims. It was a history for a long time around intimate partner and sexual violence services where services were only provided to women. Sometimes they would say to all women, like not just cis women, but oftentimes the cis was either implied or directly enforced and kind of this females versus males. Um, there's this heteronormative cisnormative frame that adds an additional barrier to queer and trans people. We know that actually, especially bisexual women um, and trans folks are actually more likely to seek help than their cis or hetero counterparts, but they are less likely to receive um, actual support that they found useful, right? So they're reaching out more um, when they experience violence. This is just among survivors. But when they go for that help, they're facing huge barriers. They're facing folks who don't, aren't thinking about the pronouns that they're using. They're assuming that they're heterosexual. They're assuming that they're making a lot of assumptions about them. 
They have maybe even the will to support queer and trans people, but have not cultivated the skill. Um, and we know clinically that there's a big difference between, and obviously, you know, it's better to care than to, to not care. Like I'd rather, you know, a place that is um, not transphobic or homophobic or biphobic, but that is not a good enough floor because we know simply um, caring about LGBT people, not wanting them to be harmed, et cetera, does not equal that you know how to work with them. We also need to understand that accessing victim services for anyone involves coming out as a survivor. And for queer and trans students, it involves another layer of coming out. Having to disclose to a clinician or therapist that you're a survivor of violence can be difficult for anyone. But having to discuss your sexual or gender identity connected to your experience of violence can be difficult for so many other reasons. It's important to recognize that LGBT survivors, in some cases, are coming out as both a survivor and as a member of the LGBT community. So that can be um, very anxiety-provoking uh, if you're not out already in your communities or if you don't know who's going to find out um, once you disclose your survivor status to a clinician on campus. If a perpetrator is in the community, uh, survivors might worry, um, and, and I mean the LGBT community, uh, survivors might worry that disclosing that they've experienced violence is going to bring uh, attention to the LGBT community in a, in a negative way, and so they worry about that. That might be a barrier for them feeling comfortable using on-campus resources. There are steps that institutions can take to help LGBTQ plus students seeking victim services on campus. One of the most important things that schools can do is provide services that welcome students of all identities and experiences. This is important for all students, but especially significant for queer and trans students. There are a couple key components of how these victim services can be more affirming to, to create space for LGBT students. So like all uh, survivors, they need resources that believe them and validate their experiences and affirm their identities. So that is asking survivors um, and, and taking their cues about the pronouns that they use and how they describe their experiences, their bodies, et cetera. Some of the best practices for, for creating um, services that are going to be affirming for um, for survivors, LGBT survivors. I already mentioned taking cues from survivors, asking pronouns, asking how survivors refer to parts of their bodies. That's especially important in the clinical space um, for us. So our college, um, our college counseling centers, our college health centers. And then again, because we know that climate is important for shaping. So that means exposure to discrimination related to sexual orientation, gender identity, race, ethnicity, that shapes our risk for, for intimate partner violence and sexual violence and what happens after. And so part of our role as service providers can be creating affirming climates in our, in our organizations. So that's avoiding biases and judgment. That's acknowledging errors. That's saying, I'm sorry, when you, um, when you know that you have said something or done something to cause harm. It's being transparent about what the limitations of your role or organization are and then building rapport with communities to help bridge those limitations and find connect survivors to the resources that they need. It's providing access to gender-neutral bathrooms on campus. Again, that all of these things kind of intertwine. Steps that a campus would take to create an affirming climate for LGBT students are also going to help the well-being of survivors of sexual violence. 
Another step that schools can take is to involve folks from the local LGBTQ community in developing victim services. This will help provide a local context to ensure that services are accessible and relevant for all students. Being queer or trans in rural Iowa is not the same as being queer or trans in New York City. It's not the same as being queer or trans in Toronto. Like Those are not the same. And so getting a sense of that experience, if one doesn't have it, is really valuable. I think that LGBTQ folks who do this work are able to innovate within the systems that they're a part of. So for example, educational programs that speak more to how folks are meeting and connecting in online venues is incredibly important. It's more important now. And it's, you know, and and heterosexual and cisgender people are connecting more online, but LGBTQ folks especially, and especially in rural areas, that's a big part of dating and meeting people. So having that fluency is really valuable. I'll say too that I think that work looks really different depending on where you are regionally in the U.S. Um, And as someone who's lived in the Southeast now for quite a while, um, you know, I think that folks are trying to innovate and do this work in ways that are subtle. What's hard, I think, is I'm sometimes in spaces with folks who are in New York or San Francisco or other um, cities where I think being queer is a lot more normalized. And they have interventions that are great, but they will absolutely not work um, the place that I live in North Carolina. Providing effective services for LGBTQ plus students isn't just about making services inclusive, training practitioners, or providing education to the campus community. The only way to ensure that victim services are accessible to all students and violence on campus is being addressed is to change the culture on campuses. We need to change beliefs around not only the LGBTQ community, but also what we think about violence and survivors. LGBT students are more likely to experience institutional betrayal. So that is um, a concept where you expect that your institution, your college or university is going to support you and provide the resources that you need to uh, heal and and move forward. And so when that doesn't happen, you can feel this feeling of betrayal and it's associated with me- poor mental health um, across the board. But studies have shown that LGBT students in particular are are more likely to experience that kind of betrayal. And that's important because we also know that climates on campuses shape LGBT students' uh, risk for violence and the likelihood that they're going to tell someone that they experienced violence. And so our work as providers together um, is important to, to shape these positive campus climates that are affirming for LGBT students. And then it's also creating a culture of continual learning and growing as an institution to understand how uh, discrimination, how um, systemic oppression, power, and privilege shape the experiences of our students on campus. So that means taking this social justice lens, focusing on individual action plus these systemic cultural factors which shape institutional policies and and contexts that our students are coming into. It's addressing power and privilege on campus in our programs. And then it's recognizing, and I think this has been one of the most powerful parts of my work, recognizing that we must challenge um, that single narrative that is often used to understand what sexual violence looks like recognizing that there are multiple counter-narratives and survivors' experiences are going to differ greatly. And that means that our, for us to create supportive 
responsive programs on our campuses, we need to recognize that sexual violence looks different in different communities. Increasing awareness, actively working on being inclusive, and providing accessible victim services are all necessary steps to take to address violence experienced by LGBTQ plus students on campuses. Folks do this really well, is provide education that centers LGBTQ folks, but is provided to everybody. So we can't have, okay, well, we'll have cisnormative, heteronormative prevention for most people, and then we'll have a class for the, you know, the queer and trans students. Um, that's better than nothing, but it doesn't solve the problem and change an overall culture. We also, I think, have folks who are doing a lot of innovative work to move beyond some of the course correction we've done. So because of the men's violence against women frame of the field, a lot of programming for a while would do this thing called, I call it the disclaimer. At the beginning of the training, you say something like, hi, welcome to this training. You know, we recognize that violence could happen to anyone, including in same-sex relationships. LGBT people can experience violence, but we, we're going to focus specifically on men's violence against women, and maybe we'll have a scenario with some gay men in it. And that was considered progressive when I started doing education. The next step in that was, all right, we'll make all our stuff gender neutral. Everyone will be named Alex and Pat, and we'll do scenarios with Alex and Pat, and there will be no genders. It's really well-meaning. The thing is, I've never been anywhere, and I doubt anyone else who's listening has, where gender is neutral. Gender is not neutral. How I present my gender impacts my risk for violence. My sexual orientation, who I am partnered with, or folks assume I am partnered with, impacts my risk of violence. It just does. And so... I appreciate when we have those gender neutral scenarios, but folks who are queer and trans doing this work, I think are moving a step farther to say, how does gender relate to this? So as an example, what does it look like to intervene as a bystander when you have a friend who's trying to navigate, how do I talk to my partner about my body as a trans person? How do I have that conversation? And if that conversation goes badly and turns violent, what is that scenario? Gender is a part of that. You can't just say Alex and Pat are having a conversation about how they might hook up. It's not the same. What I'm seeing a lot of LGBTQ people doing that work in order to say we need to be thinking from gender transformative perspectives. We, when we live in a culture that targets people for being not cis or heterosexual, um, for being queer, for expressing their gender in a way that doesn't line up with rigid gender roles. Uh, we need to do that for everyone that needs to be a part of this. Because if, if someone is at an event on campus or in class or at a party, statistics would show us that the majority of people who are around them are probably not queer or trans. So we need to equip folks, everybody. And I think that there also is a, rec a greater recognition that we can't talk about violence and we can't talk about gender without talking about LGBTQ folks. So that complexity and thinking intersectionally is what folks are doing in a lot of their programming and are using opportunities to align with anti-oppression work and trying to weave in all of those pieces. Because if we're talking about root causes of violence, root causes of violence are oppression. Root causes of violence need to take into account and shift culture. It's important to take a moment to talk about what Rutgers University is doing for our students. 
we have two main places where LGBTQ plus students can access victim services. We have a center called the Center for Social Justice Education and LGBT Communities. Obviously, that's a mouthful, and it typically goes by SJE. This is a place for queer and trans students to get a ton of resources or connect to services. Students can also access help through the Offices for Violence Prevention and Victim Assistance, or VPVA, which has an office on each of our four campuses. Not only do these places offer services or a connection to services and resources, they also offer trainings and workshops for incoming and current students and faculty and staff on the LGBTQ community, how to make our university a more inclusive place, and how violence impacts this community, amongst other issues. There are also many student groups for LGBTQ students on each campus. These are places for students to build community and get resources. And we will be sure to include a list of these groups in the show notes. Rutgers is always working to learn more and be more inclusive, and we are lucky to have access to LGBTQ plus victim-specific services. Whether someone wants to seek help as a member of the queer or trans community or as a survivor of violence or both, our community is working to be more inclusive of people of all gender and sexual identities and help prevent violence throughout our campuses. We are looking forward to bringing you more episodes about violence and victimization on campuses and what we can do to best help survivors and what that looks like on Rutgers University's campuses. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to reach out, send us an email at vawc at ssw.rutgers.edu. Thanks for listening.